0: Absolutely beautiful, Nell. Thank you. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, pass that to the center aisle and we will collect those and pray for you this week. I've known Ed Lacey since the, over 20 years, and I'm thankful for his steadfast walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a gospel partner uh, with FBCG. We pray for him every week, we support his ministry, and I'm so thankful because he goes to places like South Africa and Kenya and uh, Korea and uh, India and many other places. But he also goes to places like Georgia and Alabama and, uh, and Louisiana and many other places besides. Uh, I always know what i 'm going to get when Ed comes, a challenge to look seriously at my walk with Christ and how he al- always urges us urges us to uh, look at um, our salvation to examine ourselves before God. I was amused and overjoyed in June when Ed posted on Facebook a, a story from his life. Um, Maybe you could put the picture up, Adam. I'll let Ed speak in his own words. Friends, I was teaching a Bible study to my twin grandsons in New Orleans recently. We were in New Orleans to visit the World War II Museum. I happened to be sharing my testimony of my spiritually bankrupt condition before my conversion when a text rang from my phone in the next room. The text was from my brother in Los Angeles, who did not know that my wife, my two grandsons, and I were visiting New Orleans that very day. He sent this photo, a news clipping of a rock band in which I was the drummer. He also passed along the news that I was inducted into the New Orleans Musicians Hall of Fame. But oh, friends... God sovereignly sent the picture at the very moment that I was giving my testimony to my 15-year-old grandsons to give a visual demonstration of how amazing, the amazing grace of God transformed a lost and rebellious drummer into a disciple of Jesus Christ. The one in the middle with the hat, who also looks like a cast member of Pirates of the Caribbean is the old Ed Lacey in 1971. But he died in October of 1980 in union with Christ. He was buried with him in baptism unto death. He was raised to walk in newness of life. Glory to the Lamb. And for the next few minutes, put on your seatbelt as we're challenged to look at God's word to us. I love Ed Lacey. I'm so thankful that we're locked at the hip with regard uh, to the Great Commission. Ed, we love you. Please come preach to us.
1: Amen. Do we have to see that guy? (laughs) What a pleasure to serve you once again and to be with my dear brother Jim. God graces churches with pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And the pastor is called to feed the flock through the exposition of the word and lead the flock through the example of his life as it's lived out before them and among them. And God has graced you with a man now for almost three decades who has done just that by the grace of God and for the glory of God. What a privilege to be here. And... uh, Come alongside and to serve you the Word of God this morning. We're thinking about this morning, as you heard from our text in Mark 10, in verses 17 through 22, we're thinking about this issue of coming to Jesus Christ the Lord on His terms. We heard the text this morning. The young man comes running. He falls on his knees. He asked, what must I do to inherit, to obtain eternal life? If I walked through the typical Baptist church this morning and went pew to pew and asked this question, what is eternal life? I'm certain I'd get some interesting answers. Some folks would say, well, immediately, well, that's going to heaven when you die. Well, that's icing on the cake, but that's not Jesus' definition of eternal life. Some would say, well, that's walking on streets of gold and looking at pearly gates and having a mansion over the hilltop and a reunion with grandma, but that's not Jesus' definition of eternal life. If anyone knows what eternal life is, Jesus knows, Amen? amen? And he says in the great high priestly prayer, this is eternal life. That you may know God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son whom he has sent. Eternal life is not found in a place. It's not found in a plan. It's not found in a little formula. It is found by a miraculous Entrance into a saving knowledge of the Father and the Son by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So that because of that saving knowledge, as we heard this morning, Jesus might become the supreme love of your life. Above all other people or things, He might be the sovereign Lord of your life that you might find your significance, your satisfaction, your identity, your salvation in Him. But if an individual is going to experience and enjoy eternal life and escape the eternal wrath of God, then he must come to the Jesus of the Gospels, not a Jesus of your own imagination... Not a Jesus of some preacher's watered-down concoction, but the Jesus of the gospel on his conditions. We see a man who comes running. He falls on his knees. He asks life's most important question, what must I do to inherit, to obtain eternal life? And yet he walks away without eternal life. Because he was not willing to come to King Jesus on Jesus' conditions. Did you notice the man in this message? We call him what? The rich, young ruler. He he was a man of position. Uh, Luke calls him a ruler, but it's not just any kind of ruler. He was a religious Ruler, probably a lay leader in the local synagogue. This man was a man of religious affiliation, a man who had religious attendance, a man involved in religious activity, but a person can be involved in religious affiliation, attendance, even activity, but has not come to Jesus on his terms. He was a man of position. Not only that, as Brother Lonnie uh, read to us, he was a man of possessions. (laughs) He had great possessions. He was a wealthy man. In other words, he had all of his needs met and beyond his needs. And if that's the definition of wealthy, everyone in this room is wealthy, comparatively speaking. I've had the joy to minister in Cuba on 38 occasions. The average income is 50 cents per day. The equivalent of 50 U.S. uh, cents a day. In other countries I could speak about, uh, Kenya, Uganda, 20 different nations. Listen, we are wealthy. But riches do not profit in the day of wrath. He was a man of position, a man of possessions, and yet he was a man with a great problem. There was a gnawing void in his soul when he was quiet and alone. There was a restlessness within his heart and this gnawing emptiness, this restlessness sent him to the Lord Jesus. And notice the manner in which he came. He came urgently. Uh, One came running, his lack of assurance, that knowing restlessness, uh, gave him an urgency in his heart. So he saw an opportunity to speak to the Lord Jesus on the open road, and yet he comes running with an urgency. Can you imagine if that happened in our closing hymn this morning? Not only does he come urgently... He comes reverently. He fell on his knees. Uh, The Lord's out on the open road. There's certainly a large crowd around him. Possibly some of this man's friends or those who attend the synagogue. But listen, he didn't care what anybody else thought. There was an urgency within him and it sent him to Jesus reverently on his knees before the large crowd in the open. Not only that, uh, he came with the right question. He was concerned about eternal things. You know, that's half the battle when I'm witnessing to most people because most people in our country are so distracted by the temporary trinkets and amusements of this world that they are dangerously neglectful concerning the need and the condition of their soul. But this man knew that he was going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And he was deeply concerned about the condition of his soul. The destination of his soul. The need of his soul. And not only that, may I say, he came to the right person, didn't he? He came to the One who has the words of life. He came to the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet He walks away after coming urgently, reverently, asking about eternal things, coming to the only Savior of sinners, but He walks away without salvation. Without salvation eternal life. Still on the road to eternal condemnation. Have you ever wondered why doesn't Jesus just give him a little formula and ask him to repeat a prayer? Why why doesn't Jesus say to him, as we've heard so much in our convention over the last half a century, salvation is as easy as A-B-C? No, it's not. It's not easy. It's not simple. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading the text, Jesus says it's impossible with man. He didn't say it was simple and easy. He said, it is impossible with man. But not with God. <laughs> now why doesn't Jesus say, well, just repeat this prayer with me? Jesus never asked anyone to repeat a prayer with him. Because faith in the efficacy of a repeated prayer has never saved anyone. Why doesn't Jesus say to him, just invite me to come into your heart? Jesus never asked a sinner to invite him to come into their heart. Jesus did not say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Invite me to come into your heart. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. repent and believe the gospel. Oh, this guy's come running, he's come urgently, he's come reverently. Why doesn't the Lord say to him, all you have to do is accept me as your personal savior? Have You ever heard that? Jesus never asked anyone to accept him as their personal Savior. No apostle in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, asks sinners to accept Jesus. The issue is never will the sinner accept Jesus. The issue is will Jesus accept the sinner? And he'll only accept the sinner when the sinner comes to the Lord Jesus on his conditions. No, Jesus doesn't say any of this humanly fabricated stuff. Jesus says, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. Now, why does the Lord hold the terms so high, so high that they appear humanly impossible to meet? Are the conditions to conversion different today in 2021 in the United States of America? (laughs) Or are they exactly the same? What are the underlying issues that the Lord is confronting this rich young ruler with? And what is he confronting us with this morning if we're going to know this eternal life? And personally, have you come to this Jesus on his terms? As you hear this message, I pray you think about yourself first. And if you have the knowing you've come to Jesus on his terms, you'll think about others. Secondly, he confronts him with four major truths. And he confronts us with the same truths. First of all, we see in the second half of verse 17, the Lord confronts this rich young ruler with his fallen character. He calls Jesus good master. The word good there means essentially, morally, perfectly good. And Jesus says to the young man, young man, why are you calling me perfectly, essentially, good to the core? For no one ever referred to a rabbi, a teacher, as being perfectly good to the core. For they knew only God was perfectly good to the core. And he says to the young man, why are you calling me essentially morally perfectly good to the core? May have the may the Lord is he possibly forcing this young man to come to the realization of who was gazing into his being? This young man was face-to-face with the one who is essentially good to the core. He was face-to-face with Emmanuel, God with us, God tabernacling before men. He was face-to-face with the great I Am. And God the Son was confronting him. He's confronting us with the truth that only God is uniquely and absolutely perfectly good to the core young man no one is good to the core except God and young man that includes you young man you're not good to the core as a matter of fact you are bad to the core now he was in the synagogue he should have known Jeremiah 17:9 in which the word of God declares that every human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked no exception that word desperately, the Hebrew word, if you could take it into today's terminology, it would be as if we are, the family is in the ICU waiting room. You have a loved one in ICU in extremely critical condition. You're waiting for word from the specialist. And the specialist comes out to the family in the waiting room and says, unless there is a miracle, the case is hopeless. Hopeless. That's the picture. The unconverted heart is hopelessly wicked to the core. This young man was thinking too highly of himself. He wasn't thinking highly enough of God. And do you know if we're left to our own devices, if we're left to ourselves, we will by nature think too highly of ourselves? And not highly enough of God? If we're left to ourselves, we'll more than likely respond in a manner a young man responded when I was witnessing to him a while back. I was sharing with him the bad news and the good news, and this young man responded to me. He said, Mr. Lacey, I may be a sinner, but I'm a good sinner. I said, young man, imagine we go in your backyard and we're digging around in the filth and the the dirt and the mud, and we discover about a hundred worms squirming around there in the mud, but there is one worm in the midst of those hundred worms who is a standing worm. And not only can this worm stand upright, but he's a speaking worm. And he stands up and he looks around at the other 99 worms and he thinks to himself, you know, I may be a worm, but I'm a pretty good worm compared to those other worms. I said, young man, one worm compared to another worm is still a worm. And one sinner compared to another sinner is still a sinner. No one is good enough, moral enough, in and of themselves to escape the eternal wrath of God and enter into the presence of God. Because God's requirement for escaping his eternal wrath and entering into his presence in heaven is that you must have a righteousness that is exactly right, equal to God's righteousness. Jesus said be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The Lord Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. God requires perfect righteousness. That presents a terrible problem to every one of us because there is none righteous, no, not one. And the best human performance that we can offer to God is as filthy rags to a holy God. No one enters into a saving knowledge of Jesus until they first enter into a true knowledge of themselves. Their sinfulness, their bad heart, their fallen character before a holy God. Oh, but the Lord digs even deeper. Not only does He confront this young man about his bad heart, He confronts him and He confronts us about our bad record. And not only do you have a fallen character, but you have secondly failed the commandments. Did you notice that? In verse 19, uh, uh, So Jesus begins to quote, the second half of the moral law of God. He says to this young man, you know the commandments. And the same encounter in Matthew 19 and verse 17, it is, it's put in this way by Matthew. He says, do you want to enter into life? Then keep the commandments. Amen. What? <laughs> keep the commandments. But nobody's ever kept the commandments. Except for Jesus. Amen? Jesus is saying to him, he's saying to us, not only do you have a bad heart, you have a bad record. He comes running, he comes kneeling, he says, how can I have eternal life? And the Lord confronts him with the moral law of God. Why? Because by the law, comes the knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder by which we climb ourselves into God's approval. The Ten Commandments are a mirror which reveals to each of us that we are guilty, condemned criminals in the courtroom of God. Have you ever seen your life In light of the moral law of God. Do not commit adultery. But the Lord says if you look after a woman. Or if a woman looks after a man. With lust in their heart. They're already guilty of adultery. Do not murder. But anger without a righteous cause. Holding a grudge. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. It's the same hard attitude. Uh, Do not steal. Have you ever taken even the smallest thing that didn't belong to you? No matter the value. How many things must a person steal to become a thief from God's viewpoint? Do not bear false witness. Ever told a lie? Even a white lie? Ever given a false appearance of yourself? Oh, we could continue to walk through the. uh, Who would stand up and say, I perfectly honored and obeyed my parents from my childhood, teenage years, not only in uh, action and in word, but in heart attitude? Well, if you stood up and said that, you'd be breaking the commandment I previously spoke of, wouldn't you? That's only half the exam. And the Bible says if you've kept all the law and only broken one, you're guilty of shattering them all. It is as if God has given us a final examination. It is the moral law of God. And there are only two grades from God's examination. Either you receive an A because you perfectly obeyed all of the law 24-7 every day of your life, or you receive an F. There are no B's, C's, and D's. There is no gradient on the curve. A, perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments all of your life. Or F, I've got some bad news. The test papers have come back. And you received an F. Well, Brother Ed, I saw that picture so obviously my F is better than your F. It's still an F. Well, my F's almost a D. You're deceiving yourself. Every one of us have a bad heart and a bad heart record before God. Accursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. I'm asking you this morning, not if you repeated a prayer back in 1972 or you walked an aisle or raised the hand. I'm asking you, have you ever been prosecuted and convicted by the law of God and the Spirit of God so that you saw yourself a guilty convicted, condemned, criminal in the courtroom of God? Has the iron hand of the moral law of God ever banged on the door of your heart, awakening you to the realization that you are a lawbreaker in the presence of God? Did you notice this young man's response? He responds to the second half of the Ten Commandments. He says, he foolishly says, all these things I have observed from my youth. He thought he'd made an A. (laughs) When in reality, he had made an F. He falsely thought he had kept the law when in reality he had shattered the entire law because he had been breaking the first and greatest commandment every single day of his life. And what is the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All of your heart mind, soul, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. But he had another God, didn't he? He had an idol in his heart. He had another supreme love. His idol was his money, his wealth. He was living a life of blasphemous idolatry against God every day of his life. And yet imagining that he was a law keeper. And anyone in this room who has yet to come to King Jesus on his terms, which we will close with shortly. If you fail to come on his terms, you are a blasphemous idolater. Because God did not create you to live for yourself. He created you to enter into a saving knowledge of His Son so that His Son might be the preeminent love in your life. And anything less is blasphemous idolatry. It is treason against the God who created you to live for His Son. This young man was a blasphemous idolater. And yet, notice verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. God, the Son, the omniscient Lord, gazed into the bad heart and the bad record of this blasphemous idolater. And he loved him with a love of compassionate pity. And the omniscient Lord still gazes into every heart in this room today. His eyes are like a flaming fire. He sees and knows every thought, every word, every action, every attitude, every motive. He knows every selfish, self-centered, sinful ambition, affection, every motivation. He sees all the blasphemous idolatry. And yet... Jesus loves blasphemous idolaters. He so loved them that he left the glory, the perfection, the worship of heaven. The one who lives above time and space stepped into time and space. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He walked on this earth tempted at all points like we are and yet he made an A. (laughs) Every second of every moment of every hour of every day Jesus made a perfect day. He perfectly loved the Father with 100% of His heart, mind, soul, and strength. He perfectly obeyed the law of God in its fullness. He perfectly pleased God the Father in every way. And then on the most important day of human history, the holy, sinless, spotless Lamb of God marched up to the cross of Calvary, not as a victim of circumstances, but as a voluntary Sacrifice. He said, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. And He bound Himself to that cross with cords of love. Love for His Father to complete this great salvation mission. Love for blasphemous idolaters like us. And then that day at noonday, it became as a midnight blackness of darkness. And for the next three hours, the only person who was ever good to the core... Became the sinless substitute to endure and exhaust the equivalent of an eternity of the wrath of God on behalf of any blaspheming idolater who will turn from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God the Father made God the Son who made a perfect A to be the sin substitute, the curse bearer, the wrath bearer for my life of F's. So that I, a wretch like me, might become the righteousness of God. I might be graced, imputed with the perfect of Jesus on my account. Jesus loves blasphemous idolaters. And listen, He loves this young man who's come running, he's come kneeling, he's asked about eternal things. He loves him enough not to water down the message, but to confront him with the terms to enter into a saving knowledge of Jesus, which is the essence of eternal life. And what does he say to him? Two points and we close. First of all, you must forsake your idol. That's what he says. Verse 21, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. If you're going to enter into eternal life, young man, which is a saving knowledge of me, if you're going to escape the eternal wrath of God, you must smash your idol. In his case, it was his green God. You must turn your back on your green God. And embrace me as your Lord and your God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to us this morning, you cannot serve two masters. If I'm coming in, the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm not coming in to be placed among your other gods. I'm coming in only to be the undisputed champion of your heart. You must turn away from the blasphemous idolatry of yourself as the center of your own universe. He's talking about genuine repentance. Amen? If you're going to embrace Jesus, you must forsake. Your idol. You can't hold on to Jesus with one hand and hold on to an idol with another hand. Well, what is an idol? It is whoever or whatever is number one in your life. If it's not Jesus, it's an idol. And this self-centered, self-directed, self-pleasing life of blasphemous idolatry is expressed in many different ways in many different people. For some people, like this young man, it is money. It is wealth and the trinkets and the toys that money can buy. For other people, it is amusements. It might be, go Tigers. It might be uh, this amusement, this pleasure, this uh, sport, this TV, uh, these movies, shopping. Shopping, whatever it is, some manner of amusement. For some people that I speak to weekly, it is drugs. It is alcohol addiction. For other people, their family is their number one love. Jesus has never been their number one love. You know, even a spouse can be an idol. No, Jesus, read Luke 14. He's calling for you to embrace him as supreme love above all others. Children, grandchildren, can be an idol if Jesus is not the number one love. A person's career can be their idol. A person's false religious experience in the distant past that never made them a new creation in union with Christ. Many different things can be the idol, but what Jesus is saying is you've got to realize, first of all, you've been guilty of committing treason. Blasphemy against the God who created you to live for him, you must forsake your idol as number one. If a person lacks repentance, they lack conversion. Amen? If they lack conversion, they lack salvation. They lack salvation, they lack eternal life. And the only alternative to eternal life is the eternal wrath of God. Jesus commands us to make a supernatural about face. That's what happened to that guy you looked at in 1980 in New Orleans, in my living room. The grace of God and the Spirit of God brought the gospel to me in such Power that there was a supernatural about face. I've been going in my own ways like a lost, wandering sheep, but by the grace of God, there was an about face. This is what the Bible says. Repent and be converted so your sins will be blotted out. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, that's a, not an invitation to repent. Like an invitation to a birthday party. Oh, oh will you come to my party? Well, I'll try to make it. Maybe, a, maybe I'll make it. Maybe No, this is not an invitation. This is a command. A command from the throne room of the universe. And for one to refuse, that command is to defy the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's commanding us to repent. And lastly, he's calling to that young man, he's calling to you to place saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you see that in the text? Oh, go your way. Sell whatever you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. you got to forsake your green God. You're saving faith. Come, take up the cross, and follow me. Because if you keep your life for yourself, the idolatry of self, you will lose your soul. But if you lose your life, for my sake and the Gospels, your soul shall be saved. In light of the truth, young man, that you have a bad heart, you have a bad record, in light of the truth, that God the Son is about to head to the cross to become the sinless substitutionary sacrifice. God commands you To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your ways, your sin, your idols, and believe on the one who is Christ Jesus the Lord. Young man, give me your heart. Give me your mind. Give me your soul. Give me your obedience to my gospel truth. Jesus offers himself as a Savior to be trusted in, and a Lord to be surrendered to and followed. That's saving faith. It's far more than just giving a mere intellectual assent to a few minimized facts about Jesus and then parroting a prayer with those facts included, but there's no genuine repentance and saving faith. This is a commitment of the life to follow him. To be converted away from following your ways, your idols, your wandering ways, and converted to become a follower of him. His will. His word. His ways. One man has well put it. F A I T. forsaking all I take him he came running he fell on his knees he asked about eternal things he came to the right person and I can just imagine the Lord Jesus beholding him Loving him. Loving him too much to concoct a little plan and water down the message. He loves him enough to tell him the truth. And the young man is counting the cost of forsaking his idol and following Christ. But he said no. I won't do that. There's no record that he was ever converted. He has spent 20 centuries in hell because he was not willing to give Jesus his sins to be forgiven. He was not willing to give Jesus his life to be ruled. He'd have been happy to tack Jesus onto his life. But as we sang this morning, he was unwilling for Jesus to be his life. He would have been happy to come to Jesus on his own terms. Or some watered-down preacher's terms. But he was unwilling to come to Jesus. On his terms. So I ask you today. Have you come to this king? On his terms. This young man walked away disheartened grieved because he had a great idol how will you walk away today will you give Jesus your sins to be forgiven will you give King Jesus your life that he might guide it and govern it what shall it profit a man, a woman a young person if they were to gain the whole temporary transient world and lose their never-dying soul. Will you bow with me in prayer for a moment? Jesus commands you to repent. The Lord Jesus, we heard in the first session this morning say, unless you repent... Unless you forsake your wandering ways, your idols, you will perish. Today, though, you can call on Him, cry out to Him today. And I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ, I plead with you to obey His gospel commands today. You can't do it on your own, but you cry out to him. Have mercy on me. Call on him. Ask him to grace you, to birth you, that you might forsake your ways and become a follower of Jesus. Father, use your word today. Oh, Spirit of God, may every person in this room examine themselves As Paul said to the church at Corinth, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, whether Jesus lives in you, except you be reprobate, disqualified. I can't do that examination. Oh, Lord, would you search hearts and lives today? Would you awaken those who've never come to you on your terms? And Lord, those of us who have, may we be careful as we witness to others to challenge them about their fallen character, about the fact they've failed the commandments. May we challenge them to turn from their idols and to follow you in saving faith. Oh, Holy Spirit, apply your truth that you inspired to every person today. For Jesus' sake, I'm going to ask our precious shepherd, our pastor, Brother Jim, would you come and close as God would lead you.